Hello and welcome to Soundtrack Showdown, our monthly podcast where we take two soundtracks, compare them across five rounds, and declare an overall winner. With me again, as always, it's Ella Kova. Hey, how are you doing, Ella? I'm I'm get I'm very well actually for the first time. Good, I, good. I've, been, I've been well all the time, but yes, and you? Oh, you know, getting through, getting through. Um, a couple of interesting movies this month. So, for those who were listening last month, you will have noticed that we decided to have a bit of a look at like one of the most watched movies in lockdown. I have no idea why, but apparently everybody was watching Public Enemies. And for me, at least, it was the first time, but I, I don't believe you... I think you had seen it before, is that right? Yeah, so I saw it pretty much, I think, a couple of years after it was released. Okay. I, I enjoyed it less second time viewing, weirdly enough. So this is Public Enemies, 2009, from um, director Michael Mann, who's generally a fantastic director. He's got an extraordinary list of heats. He's, I would say he's probably his single biggest claim to fame is being able to get great actors, particularly male actors, their big Oscars moment. Uh, he directed Last of the Mohicans, Heat, The Insider, Ali. So there's, what, Oscars for um, Daniel Day-Lewis, Russell Crowe, or at least heavy Oscar nominations for Daniel Day-Lewis, Russell Crowe and Will Smith. And Heat, which is, you know, one of these seminal crime dramas, which we've spoken about before because it was the heavy inspiration for a lot of The Dark Knight. Great, great director. And for this one, he used the composer Elliot Goldenthal, who I know you have a very soft spot for, for some of his scores, particularly Interview with a Vampire. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he also worked on Heat as well. That's right. He did too. Uh, but this one, I don't know, like it didn't really have any awards buzz around it. I feel like it's one, you know how you see those movies sometimes, you're like, oh, that movie was meant to do a lot better than it did. And it just just didn't get what it needed to get for whatever reason. It had all the cast, crew, etc. there, but it just never really took off in terms of either commercial or critical success. And for me, I'd say it... it I, I, I felt like it missed something. It just felt kind of slow and disconnected and soulless. I think that I think it was focusing on the wrong narrative in yeah, some ways. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I agree. Did you get to? Did you feel like you knew who John Dillon uh, John Dillinger was? No, and the thing, yeah, exactly. So the thing is, I I feel like it didn't know what it was meant to be focusing on, which is strange because I feel like Michael Mann movies in general have a pretty good idea of of what they're trying to do on on stuff like that. I felt like it was trying to be a character study of 
um, John Dillinger and Melvin, whatever his name is, the guy who... Was hunting him down. Uh, Christian Bale plays. Yeah, the guy's hunting him down. And I thought it was meant to be this kind of like two-person story of their two lives colliding, much like Heat was, right? Yeah, Heat, Cat Heat. and Mouse. Yeah, Cat and Mouse and where like, you know, th- these two men, they only really appreciate each other because they're fixated on it. I thought it was meant to be that kind of a movie. And I feel like it thought it was meant to be that sort of a movie as well because it ignored everything around them really it doesn't really give you a very good idea of like this is set in the middle of the great depression you could forget that (laughs) right you could forget when it's set you don't really see you know the bread lines the um the sort of the whole hobo culture the sort of people roaming around the country trying to find work you don't see any of that as the backdrop to this story even though it clearly is important the the whole idea of john dillinger as a like a robin hood figure is because everybody's so poor and he's robbing banks but we never see that disparity so we never really get to appreciate what's going on and the hardships and all yeah yeah it's yeah so you, so you don't get the outside world which implies that it's meant to be a character study but then you ask the question do i feel like i know who john dillinger is and i get to the end of this like two hour long character study and i'm like no i don't mm. Mm. um mm. and i say that despite the fact i feel feel like it focused too much time on him because i know even less about melvin christian bale like yeah i I'm confused, but I have tried not to let that colour my opinion of the movie. Up against Public Enemies, we decided to... Because I thought I was expecting this to be a very good film, Michael Mann. I mean, this is the sort of thing he does very well. (laughs) So we picked one of the classics. Well, Well, it's actually been voted the greatest film of all time. It has. It is most definitely a classic. 1972... The Godfather, directed by, and everybody knows this off by heart, Francis Ford Coppola, music by Nino Rota, which I had not seen this film before. Uh, we've spoken about it before. We mentioned it, uh, I think, last last month. You can't be in film, you can't watch film and not have seen most of The Godfather, I have now come to realise. <laughs> I certainly knew the basic plot. I had seen most of the seminal scenes and, oh, my God, this film has so many seminal scenes like most films have maybe one or two scenes that people parody like say from titanic which is another huge very successful film everybody parodies the i'm the king of the world on the front of the boat and you definitely if you at least lived in the 90s you're talk about the scene of leonardo dicaprio and thingy on the the like the door and the whole you know paint me like one of your french girls meme like that's a huge movie and it's got maybe three i swear that the godfather has like 12 if not 20 seminal scenes that realize oh my god this is quoted or parodied or referenced all the time but i think the thing that that really captured me about the godfather was the simplicity of the storytelling Mm-hmm. Because it's so sequential. You never have to hold on to information for very long. It's just like guy arrives at party, guy has a history with a mob, guy asks for help, help happens, horse head in bed. Spoiler alert, just mm, throwing guys. it out there. <laughs> yes, everybody. A massive spoiler alert for these films. Sorry, probably should have mentioned that earlier. Spoilers. It's just, it's just so bang, 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 bang. And 
despite this simplicity, we you don't look at The Godfather and think, oh, it's such a basic movie. It's just so lowest common denominator. Like it's like nobody says that about The Godfather. Nobody says it's so simplistic that even an idiot could watch it and it can't be great cinema because it's so simple. Everybody applauds its storytelling and its storytelling. It's just it's so refreshingly simple. I I, I really like that. What do you think? <laughs> well. Interesting you say that. So I, like you, when I was younger, like during media studies or like we're watching various documentaries like about the best films or best hmm. cinematography or like they will always mention fragments of um, The Godfather as a sort of an example of the great cinematography, great hmm. acting. The great, because like at one point, one of those like like a hundred best actors Al Pacino was voted as the best actor because of his role in The Godfather mm-hmm. over Marlon Brando and mm. um, so I I too you know when I was younger I was very quite already um, aware of The Godfather I didn't watch it until I was much maybe in my sort of early 20s I think maybe when I was about 20 um, given your tendency to watch hyper violent films in your youth I'm happy to hear that at least you saved this one <laughs> however yes but I may have tried watching it when I was younger but as I was as I got older I think to for this film to be appreciated you need to have a, you need to kind of reach a sort of maturity mm-hmm. I think to appreciate this some of the points the simplicity the narrative and the length of the film to kind of go with it. Because I think, and when I say maturity, as in like you can be mature when you're 16, Mm. you know, you can be mature when you're 13. But I think it just takes a level of appreciation to understand the nuances, to really pay attention to the dialogue, the conversations between the characters and like really looking into the details. and not miss them because sometimes if you don't pay attention to the dialogue then there's a whole lot that you can miss because everything is to do with their their eye contact the way everything is shot um the movement the hierarchy it's all very subliminal and it like everything's it's even though not much happens and in terms of action at some points that doesn't mean that there's no storytelling within it do you know what i mean so that's why i think you kind of have to be ready to absorb the film in all its glory in all those nuances and nuances hence why when as i got older i was able to appreciate it much more and even when i was watching it like for this i was kind of like i i it took me a while to to admit to say yeah this is the greatest movie of all time but i'm you know watching it and i'm just like yeah i can't fault it and anyway, you know. Yeah, I get you. Well, look, oh, I think we could wax lyrical about The Godfather all day, and we will. Shall we get on with our rounds? Go for it. So this month, our rounds are going to be, we're going to start off with, as you should, opening music, move on to round two, character transformation, round three, love themes. It's been a while since we've done movies with love themes. Uh, number four, finale, spoilers in that one, and number five, legacy. And before we move on, please love it if you could subscribe to the podcast. Maybe you came along because you were here to hear us talk about The Godfather, in which case, welcome. Come on in. Make yourself at home. Relax. Hit subscribe. Tell your friends if you like us. 
and let's get on with the show. So, round one, opening music, and let's start with, frankly, one of the classic tracks of world cinema, uh, the main title of The Godfather, otherwise known as The Godfather Waltz. Well, obviously what you get, well, what I got from the opening is that it has this sort of very mysterious vibe to it. It does exude the sort of richness, nostalgic feel mm, as well, where... That's the you one, get nostalgia, a, yeah. Yeah, you get a sense of the cornet, which is the the instrument that is performing, um, as though it's reaching out for the past, which obviously this particular music is representing um, Don Colleon's theme. The theme really plays out the whole sort of, I guess, patriarchal vibe. It's all very quite masculine, even down to the Godfather logo with the hand holding the strings over the father text only. Oh, yeah. Yeah, good point. It's very simple. It's very operatic at the same time. And I do, the part where it gets really dark, um, if you listen to the music outside of the film as it carries on at not at like 49 seconds in there's a sort of low piano that comes in that it signifies the sort of dark horrible undertones of the mafia or like the dark undertones of the underworld um, mm. that lurks underneath the sort of traditional sort of honourable motif there's, there's a sadness to it but as an opening to the film I think it invites you into this world of yeah. mystery yeah. and something quite old as well do you know what I mean? Mm -mm. 
Old might be the wrong. In the way that an ancient is not the right word either. No, I would but... go with ancient. I, I, I actually, I actually have in my notes here. I honestly think you could pretty much play this over something set in ancient Rome, and it would still feel right. Because hmm. it's it's got that Italian sound, but it just sounds really, really old because of the like open intervals and things like that. No, I I think you can go with ancient, and that's part of the nostalgia of it all. Of it's pining for this ancient world of Italy, which I think in some ways just basically re- uh, represents Corleone down to the T. Yeah, it does. Completely agree. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, I. Can't really say that much more. I mean, I so I think it's very effective. Of the job of this is just to instantly create the feeling and setting of the film, as you say, to invite you in. So the music starts over black, and then you come in literally to Don Corleone's office as somebody's telling him a story about how his daughter was raped or whatever, and he needs wants revenge or vengeance. So you're you're being dropped right in the middle of the story and this music has welcomed you in. Probably the strongest theme of The Godfather is that sense of family and Italianness. They're the kind of two big themes, particularly in the character of Don Corleone. So much of his world pines back to this rural Italian sort of origin story that's what it's all about for them of like they might be having this sort of modern deadly mob game that they're playing but it's all about trying to keep the family safe and happy and supported in this very traditional way and obviously later on it will tie that back when they go to Italy itself but yeah it just it just brings it all together so to give it that really old very Italian kind of a sound it's it's perfect and you know Nino Rota Italian composer. Do you feel that there's some sort of honourable quality to it as well? I think there is because you've got the trumpet. So the trumpet's very heraldic, ceremonial sort of instrument. So it does give that nobility, but it's it's also very exposed and alone and mournful. So it's also a bit of a funereal instrument. So it's playing on all of those associations mm. and I think it does it very well. Yeah, because at the end of the day, the, the Godfather is ultimately alone in itself because... Yep. it's they a lonely role. It's, yeah, it's... A, but one thing that, I mean, when we compare Michael's theme later mm. on, it's just it's interesting to see the difference in their values and how musically yeah. it shows. It represents that very clearly as well. And when they play against each other and stuff, it's, it's, it's actually quite a beautiful score, how it represents these two different characters. And not only does it, it really kind of showcases their internal what they are about. Yeah. Uh, And the last thing I'll say is that it's in C minor, which doesn't mean anything to anyone yet, but will make sense soon. So let's move on to Public Enemies, where the track we are listening to, a bit different this time, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. This is not by Elliot Goldenthal, but is in fact sung by the old regular Baptists of Indian Bottom. And here they are.
So the old regular Baptists, who are the people singing here, it's it's sort of a particular religious group from the Appalachian Mountains that, and they have this very particular kind of way of singing their hymns, and that's that's what you're hearing here. This sort of very, sort of not flat, but very sort of simplistic, pared down sort of version. Lacks kind of the melody that this hymn normally has, but it's got a very raw sound. It's almost avant-garde. It is. It is. It's, it is quite cool. So I can see why they've gone with it. It's interesting that it's a very Appalachian sound and none of this movie is set in the Appalachians, but whatever. Which is just to say it's not there because it's diegetic or real. And I think probably actually, whilst I wouldn't have, I don't have a, so I don't have a problem with it as a usage in this sense. I'm not going to say, oh, well, it's not in the Appalachians, so they shouldn't use Appalachian music. Because I feel like the reason why they've gone it they've gone with it is just has a very old sort of a sound and very folky sort of a sound and that that's the world that these people are meant to live in so that's fine and it certainly this type of singing existed at the time and and I'm fine with that my problem is that when they've used the music in this way I want it to be more diegetic than it was it never feels like this film connects to the people around the characters and this track feels like it should have if you know what I mean like this track feels like it should be diegetic like they've gone to some small rural church and you hear people singing in this way or they're traveling along and you can see the people who should be singing this way but they just it never binds it into the world and that lack of connection to me really ruins what otherwise is a very aesthetically interesting piece of music to have used to start this film off. And notably, it, the music doesn't start until quite a way into the film, which is interesting in itself. Your thoughts? Yeah, it's strange. I would have preferred if the film started with this complete right at the beginning. as a, like Over black. Yeah, or it, we were just in, right, as opposed to showcasing the, um, John, the escape mm. at the beginning. I felt like it maybe to kind of set the tone a little bit would have been better to start straight with this sound. And then maybe, because then you would have had this introduction maybe of Don John Dillinger's maybe upbringing mm-hmm. at the beginning of the film. And then you can then switch to like his escape as an adult of one of his escapes. Do you yep. know what I mean? I think then that's where you would have had more of a connection to who, at least a little taste or introduction to who Don John Dillinger Dilling her is the way that it then kind of pans over the the landscape. You know, you do, you do get the sort of feel of outcast and pilgrimage, yeah. maybe like an Odyssey type vibe, and yeah. um, and but the same you do get a sense of burden, yep. um, and a sense of hardship maybe through leadership and their lack of freedom. Yeah, I think it's just a big missed opportunity again. Yeah, because those are those are two good things they could have done, but they just. They just chose not to, and it's just big things left unsaid. So they've used this piece of music, but they haven't taken advantage of it to either connect to the world or connect to the text. They also could have done what would have been far more normal, which because essentially it starts with the, the prison break, and they could have done something like the beginning of The Dark Knight where like they really established the sound of the movie in terms of Hans Zimmer's soundtrack to that to that um, well, break in in that case to that bank robbery um, they could have done that here they could have really given Elliot a chance to you know put your stamp on this film early create the sound of John Dillinger and the sort of person he is compose for this you know and they didn't they didn't do that either they they did it without music 
and I don't watch that scene. So, like, the, another movie which famously doesn't have any music for ages is Saving Private Ryan. And you get to the end of that, and you're like, oh, my God, that was an amazing sequence, the storming of the um, Normandy at the beginning of that. And you don't even know whether or not Demi's music is, is there, but you're just like, you know what, whatever they did there, it's perfect, leave it alone. This one, you get to the end of the breakout, and you're just like, yeah, okay, I guess he broke out of prison. Is that the kind of guy he is? It doesn't... I didn't feel amazed at that point, so they could have done more, and they'd done very little with what they did. Shall we just vote? Because uh, I'm going for The Godfather. I mean, same. So that is a win to The Godfather. <laughs> Round two, character transformation. So this is John and Michael Corleone. They're both very much the story of their lives. So this is music that kind of soundtracks are like key moments in their journey as it were. And we're going to start off with Marco Corleone, and the track is called The Halls of Fear. So I think this is what you were talking about earlier, where you have sort of Michael and Vito's themes playing off each other. So do you want to start off with that? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, we can definitely hear the when he when he speaks to his dad and you know on the bed. Um, you hear both their themes intertwining with each other. I guess there's a point where. So should we just for, because they're playing the same instrument? Some people might be confused. Let's just separate them out for people so that they know. So this theme here is the Godfather's Waltz, which is Don Corleone, the Godfather's theme. And now this here is... Michael's theme, for want of a better word. All right, I think everyone's got it now. Let's let's go on. I think this is the part where you this they usually say that somebody kind of loses their innocence 
Um, because when we first get introduced to Michael at the beginning of the film, he's this sort of almost stoic military type hero and quite naive and innocent. And he's like, he's classed as a civilian because mm. he wants to be completely separate from his family. He doesn't want to do anything to do with their business. And so this is the point where um, as much as Michael was being fighting against his sort of Sicilian criminal criminal roots i guess um this is where i guess you kind of say he pops his cherry um (laughs) (laughs) because he has it because this is where he's calculating the part that um uh, his father passed on to him which is the being calculating being smart and cunning comes Mm. into play because he's able to react very quickly to the situation to kind of save his father yeah and so that awakens his theme Mm. and this is where you kind of hear the distinction between the two father the two um the father and son dynamic theme because don corleone's is a little bit more warmer yep michael's one michael's theme is far more colder i find yeah in terms of its melody which showcases more so it's just showcases the difference in their values and the difference in what they place as important because it kind of does forebodes um michael's demise his this kind of kind of leads up to his path of self-destruction mm-hmm. you know because he's never able to emulate his father's respect in the same way that don Corleone is able to um, because he lacks the ability to connect with people as opposed to Don Corleone because you, that's what makes him very warm even though he is a criminal this, he, you generally get a sense that he is warm that he connects with people that he actually cares about people and their issues and he wants to try and help you don't really you don't get that with Michael with Michael you do get a sort of um, egotistic, egotism in him I love that. That's actually a really good kind of point that I I had not really picked up. I suddenly picked up that there was more sort of anxiety and tension in Michael's theme. But you're right, there is also something somewhat more psychopathic, which I read to be more like, well, Vito's seen it all and is and is therefore much calmer about everything, whereas Michael has more of this sort of like ner- nervous young energy to it. But you're right. There is a there's a humanity to um, Vito, which comes through particularly in the the scene with all of the dons around mm. the table, where they're all into the drugs and everything, and he's making this sort of very human plea of "I don't want to be involved in drugs. I think it ruins people." Like he's got a very human attitude to everything, a very sort of personal, empathetic side, which the others simply don't have. So no, I, I really like that actually. Hmm. That's a, that's a great point. Look, I don't have much more to add. I think we both love it. I'm just going to keep throwing this little thing in here of in this scene, because of the transition directly from Vito's scene to theme to Michael's, both of them are in C minor, but Michael's scene will never return to C minor, which, again, mm. just, just, just throwing that in there. We'll move on to Public Enemies. And this is possibly the track which I've seen in a couple of interviews Elliot Goldenthal himself said was perhaps one of the most interesting and one of the ones he seemed to be most proud of from this film. And the uh, track is called Plain to Chicago and it scores 
John Dillinger flying to Indianapolis. And here it is. So this is, look, it's probably one of the stronger themes of the movie. It's Dillinger traveling to Indiana, which is where he's from, um, and beginning to really, this is when he starts to embrace the whole Robin Hood thing to the extent that the film actually successfully shows it. It starts off with this threatening, slow march quality, which is sort of, for mine, it represents kind of his, like the fact that his fame is coming from his notoriety. It's about how dark and evil he gets to look. But then, so it sort of, it all starts off like he's been in jail and he's had this sort of tense conversation with Christian Bale. And then he gets on a plane that he flies to Indiana and then he's in a car traveling from the airport after there's been a bit of a media circus and he's sort of traveling to the sort of police station there where he's going to go into Indiana custody, I guess. And on the way, he actually, we actually do get a bit of a scene where he's looking out the window of the car and he's seeing other people. And at that moment, the music kind of softens, which to me is sort of the moment he begins to sort of see the impact that he's had on people. And that sort of gives him the this sort of different type of bravado, whereas in the scene with Christian Bale earlier, he had this very, like, tough, gruff, threatening kind of a thing with with him and Melvin of all things this Christian Bale's character's name Melvin then when he arrives in Indiana after this sort of sequence he's very relaxed and calm and sort of laconic he's very happy which gives him that very sort of confident criminal sort of an air which sort of is very charismatic and endearing so this sort of marks his shift from sort of tense machismo to confident bravado but i don't know i i'm not convinced musically it really says all that because i don't find it to be particularly emboldening music even though it's a very emboldening scene what do you think i mean in comparison to godfather it's a little bit meh yeah (laughs) (laughs) um i mean it's interesting how you felt that at the beginning you felt it was quite tough 
sound well thing. he's tough his character is tough and it, i think to, for me the music sounds like a death march to that like funeral well, it's funny because so for me at the beginning mm. i felt like it you're meant to kind of feel his helplessness of being taken away okay. from his place of work you know from chicago from billy um back to his hometown you know the place that actually made him mm. and there's there's an element of that fear of him being sent here i think maybe i don't know whether it's a fear that he he fears of being seen as a criminal because he left as a criminal anyway but i think there's that relief as you say where it softens that he's actually celebrated as a celebrity as well almost it's almost like this he has it's almost like a prodigal son is back sort of vibe yeah it's and the music yeah and the music kind of reinforced then kind of reinforces his self-belief and this grandiose view on himself um it's weird i don't really know that much about john dillinger and mm-hmm. after leaving watching this film i don't i don't feel like i know <laughs> you still don't it, no and i it's weird it's like i felt it more the second time right i don't know what was i don't know what i was on when i watched it the first time <laughs> in terms of the character transformation you only kind of see it in that little moment mm. and that's it you don't then see it develop any further like the finale i know we will be talking about it which i don't necessarily think that that finale is actually about him um yeah we'll definitely get to that yeah so i i think it's a very short-term moment of him you just basically get a a glimpse of him thinking that he's kind of like high and mighty and he's like cool he's the cool dude yeah but that's it it kind of then evaporates very quickly you don't get a sense of like that this is his theme does that make sense makes perfect sense so that's why I feel it's quite weak. It's a great piece of music, don't get me wrong. I feel it's still very powerful as most of Elliot Goldenthrow's, the way he's using, the way he uses the brass in his compositions, I think is amazing, but it just, I think it works on its own. I don't particularly feel it connects to this, to this character very well, which is a shame. It is a shame since I think this was really one of those moments to, to make it happen and for various reasons. Like, I think there's probably one of the better sequences the film has, because at least it tries to connect it to people. It it has the two sort of bookended prison conversations with his very different character. There was, there was a real chance here, but it's just not taken. So, oh, look, I'm voting for The Godfather. Ditto. Wow, this is beginning to shape up like last week. Uh, so that would be a round to The Godfather. Let's move on to round three, love themes. So, I mean, the Godfather soundtrack makes this particularly simple. We're talking about the love theme from the Godfather and the track is called Love Theme from the Godfather.
you couldn't get any more love theme than that. I mean, you hear this. I mean, obviously you hear this and you think of Sicily. You think yeah. of its climate. And like, obviously you, you only hear this when he is in Sicily and his courtship with Apollonia. Which I'm I'm not I'm not gonna lie I much enjoyed his courtship with Apol- Apollonia 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 sorry Apollonia yeah. as opposed to Kay yes like the difference in their relationship and passion is so evident that this music really kind of you know it's you just, it's very playful and romantic and it really emu- emulates that Italian climate and that passion you know that love at first sight the innocence you know the, how he becomes a boy when he sees her and he he wants to impress her and he makes more of an effort with her like in comparison with Kay I just found that Kay and his relationship was just a bit tepid and it's more of a friendship like it's more of like a, a business arrangement you know so but what's interesting is obviously this theme, which is one of the controversies as to yeah. that we'll talk about <laughs> in Legacy, um, is played in another film in a very different vibe, much more upbeat. We will we will get to that. Yes, we will get to that point later on. But do you, do you want to talk about the other the other place that it is played? So it's played in another film um, where Nino. Uh, composes the music for, for and it's called Fortunella and so here is this little snippet of it It's more like a big band sort of vibe, but it's much more joyful. It's much more upbeat, and it's just like umpa 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 type. So it's just the difference and kind of the the tempo and the rhythms and just the vibe. Like this one is much more more, more romantic, whereas the original is just much more kind of optimistic and joyful and kind of like crowd pleasing. Yeah. Um. So whereas this is a little, it's more intimate. Hmm. Um. But yeah, I think it's a theme for that relationship and. Michael's relationship with getting in touch with his Sicilian roots is just on point, I think. This part in the film is forcing him to kind of get reacquainted with his roots and just really embrace that, which then kind of helps him into his transformation as into a mobster, basically. (laughs) There's no way to it. I mean, if you're basically in the town that made your father, it's going to make you. I guess so, yeah. What do you think? You're hundred percent right. The the melody the, the the melody it's so romantic. It's so old. It's on mandolin and accordion, which is super Italian, and it just gives it this really sort of old school country vibe. And you're right. It's that it's that separation between the very sort of more modern Western sounds that you get in in the rest of the film, and this it sort of gives it a real sense of. It almost gives a sense of time dilation. You know what I mean? Like it feels and older and it's very it's harking back to this idea of a simpler more rural life with simpler pleasures less about money more about women (laughs) 
and it gives you this sense of this is what the mob is fighting for. This is what v- Vito Corleone is trying to recreate for himself. This is why he has the tomatoes in the backyard. Like, it's that's the nostalgia. It ties it back of this is why that stuff matters. And Apollonia is, yeah, you're right. Like, the difference between Apollonia and Kay, she's, she's a simpler woman from a simpler place, which is an awful way to say it, but that's the point. And he, yeah, he just, as you say, has this, like, boyish love for her that just has this enthusiasm that he never shows towards Kay. Moving on to Public Enemies, and we're going to be listening to Phone Call to Billy. So this is the underscore for Dillinger's somewhat reckless love for Billy. Billy played by Marion Cotillard, who's this sort of like, uh, the character is this half French, half Native American character who grew up in a reservation and has a quite sort of tragic kind of a story and is, and is very much a real person. And this is for him having a conversation with her on the phone where she's basically begging him not to come to Chicago, but, you know, because he loves her so much, he has to come. So it's his self-destructive love. Mm. And look, I think it's quite sweet and romantic. It's probably the only real warm music in the film. It has an appropriately weighty tension. I think the problem, it's too, it, it almost is too light, really. The, it has, the music really has to be capturing this, like, strong, unseen, inescapable force that's driving him to her and will ultimately lead to his collapse and fall, Mm. which means that it needs to have the strength of the Godfather love theme, this sort of powerful draw that that sucks you in. And it doesn't. And look, it's a a love theme. To have a strong, seductive pull in a love theme, we talked about this way back with Under the Skin, it's possible and it it just doesn't achieve it. And I think there's just a, wow, I just keep ragging on this film. But I just have a frustration <laughs> with this film in that it tends to do things like, this is a really important character moment, if you know what I mean. Like this draw, this self-destructive draw is really vital to understand in terms of the character portrayal of John Dillinger. 
and this music, it just it isn't distinctive enough. Maybe if they had used one of those interesting Billie Holiday songs or something here, that would have been cool, although you couldn't have a song of dialogue. But anyway, they, they needed those distinctive moments, but instead they go for this really forgettable generic music in these moments, which means that I just don't think they have the punch that they need. You? Okay, so for me, it's this bit. This music is filler music. Yeah. I did not get anything from it. The love theme, which is where I think this is a little controversial. Not exactly controversial, but in the sense of like where I am disagreeing that okay. this this particular track I don't feel is the love theme. The, the love theme is where is Bye Bye Blackbird, which is sung by Julie, Julie London, because okay. that song is played when they first meet um, in the club and they dance together. And then it's played again when they escape together one last time before she is captured and then he dies. And obviously his last words when he gets shot in through the face, he says, bye bye Blackbird, which then obviously um, gets passed on to um, Billy. Good point. I feel suitably stupid. Go on. (laughs) (laughs) And let's play that now. (laughs) Pack up all my camo. Here I go. Singing low Bye Bye Blackbird Where Somebody waits for me Sugar sweet So is he Bye No, fair point, fair point, go on. <laughs> so, I mean, so yeah, for me, I think that song really does capture them because they're both, they both feel as outcasts and they feel that they can't trust the authorities, which is mm. something that kind of, um, what's the word, joins them, blends yep. them, combines Unites them. them. Yeah. Unites them, that's it. I was trying to think of the word that um, they share a common ground, mm. um, a common values, I guess, and ideology in some ways. Um, and yeah, it's kind of like, it's their song. When you meet somebody and you know, you go to a concert or something or when you're in a restaurant or something and mm. you hear a particular song and it's that moment where it unifies your love for each other. Then every time you hear it on the radio, you're like, oh my God, it's that song. 
so I feel like this is theirs. However, is it as strong as the Godfather's one? Mm. It's it's hard to say because some of the lyrics kind of touch upon about them being not understood by the world and how yeah. you know they're always wanting to be together but it's almost like it's never going to happen it's kind of like it's a very melancholic sort of vibe and the lyrics are very exude that as well yeah i think if the godfather had a similar contemporary song used hmm. in comparison i think maybe i would have gone for i would have picked public enemies track for billy and john as mm -hmm. opposed to whichever contemporary song represented Apollonian uh, and Michael. Michael. Mm. However, because of the original score, it just does much more... Well, it, oh, actually, it's not original. It's been taken from another film. But it has. Yeah, I know. So, <laughs> um, interesting. That's a little uh, theory there. Um, but I think as it was reinvented yeah. for this particular film, which makes it sound original, and it just there's much more passion and much more everything that you kind of can think of love this sort of traditional view of romantic love is just that music does it i mean yeah. it gets played at weddings a lot yeah so, so you're voting for uh godfather me too round three goes to the godfather Uh, moving on to round four, finale. I think this is going to be interesting. Me too. <laughs> so this is where so this is music that sort of goes over the big final sequences of these two movies. Well, not not strictly final, but like the, the, the finales of the plot, really. For The Godfather, we're moving away from Nino Rota just a little bit for a moment because uh, he did, certainly didn't write all of this music, but I'm pretty sure he arranged it. The Baptism. Do you believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church? I do. Pater nostri qui es in cielo, santificetur nomen tu, arteniet regnum tua, fiat voluntas tua, sicur in cielo et in terra. Panam nostrum quotidianum da nobis odie, et debite nobis debite nostrum, sicur in nostri mitibus, debitoribus nostrus, et ne nos inducas in tentationem, se libera nos amalo. Amen. Michael. Now I'll start off with this one, mainly because I've been dropping this thread 
all the way along. So this obviously, it's a very Bach-esque organ piece that um, sits over the top of the baptism scene, which is interspersed with the assassinations of all of the um, mob bosses, etc. Now, this piece starts off as Bach's Passacaglia and Fugue in C minor. Note how we've had C minor all the way along from the original Godfather theme through to the original statement of Michael's theme. Now we end with a piece of music based on a Bach, Passacaglia and Fugue in C minor. So he's just tied it all neatly together with the, with the key. It's very dark key. It's also the same key as Beethoven's fifth, the ba-ba-ba-bam. And I think that's actually quite interesting that he's just, they've tied it all together in this particular dark, nasty kind of a key with three flats, three suns, who knows? And look, I, I think this is a really interesting moment. It's a huge call. The way that they have established these themes through the movie, it's a huge call not to use one of Nino, Nino Rota's themes here, particularly, say, like the, the Don Corleone theme. Aww. But instead, he's gone for a traditional Catholic organ music in the same key. It's a great piece of filmmaking Plenty of people have written about it. I'm not even going to put things into the notes because you can find this anywhere. Of Just the way that this scene works, this kind of the, the long sequence, the playing of a piece of music throughout, the fact that the music is diegetic, so within the scene of the baptism, it communicates very quickly to the viewer that all of these events are happening simultaneously. There's no sense of confusion about that because you, you sort of... They can, the way the cuts work, it makes it very obvious. There's... <laughs> There's actually a lot of Light of the Seven about this. I didn't realise it until actually watching it play out in the context of the film. Of the... <laughs> I think I think the sort of montage, the sort of way of editing with the music was actually used in, um, in Elizabeth as well. Yeah, and The Walking Dead. So this in particular is used a lot where you've got like one thing going on, like one main event, and you tie the music to that. And then the particular way that the montage is done, so it starts off with everyone preparing. So, yeah. every, like, all, all the people sort of getting their guns clean and set up and whatever. And this sequence of getting dressed and prepared at the beginning and then travelling to the place and then doing the thing, particularly the, the, the killing, that is, I did not realise how frequently this is used, particularly in modern television. This is so much more influential than I thought it was. Mm. I don't know if it existed before this scene, but certainly this is, I think, the one that they are all calling back to because the template is just so so clear and obvious i love it and the reason why i think it might not be originally him is it also has this real silent movie quality to it it feels like sort of back in the day when they had like the pianist would just be playing like a known piece of music and something like a piece of bark would genuinely be one of the options particularly for say one of those german expressionist films we've, we've talked spoken about a few times so just having that sort of silent movie-esque music over the top of, sort of over the top violence and drama Oh God, it's it's so good, and I, I love the fact that obviously it's religious music and it's a religious scene, and he's literally becoming a godfather as well as becoming the godfather. Like all of the symbol- it's a like, double baptism, basically. It, it is, it is, and it, like on one hand, it's so over the top in terms of like the symbolism is so obvious. But I think this is what I was kind of trying to get at earlier with this film of like. This film simplifies stuff down to the point that most people would be like, oh, you can't be that that blatant and simple. You can't be the godfather and the godfather at the same time. But it it really works. Like, it, mm. it doesn't feel simple and overdone. It actually feels nuanced and interesting. 
the thing I walked out of this film thinking was we can be simpler. We can do this stuff in easier ways than we have been. And I've been ranting long enough. You go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it, I mean, you've, you've, you've eloquently described a lot of what I was going to say. I mean, sorry, it's definitely, no, 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 it's good. It's good. It's just, it's very, um, it's basically a great, a great finale. And as you say, it's very influential in so mm. many ways. And it, it's also just plays on the whole, it demonstrates how life is also in some ways a juxtaposition, you know, because yeah. here you, you are shown a scene of new innocent life being brought into this violent, corrupt world where everybody's consumed or can be consumed by revenge and egotism and like, there you go, baby, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what's waiting for you. Yeah. Um, and like the whole purpose of a baptism is obviously the religious connotations of it is that you are you come in into this world with original sin and then obviously yeah. the water you uh, it washes you washes it takes that away from you yeah. so you can start fresh and new so in some ways it's this scene is perfect for a lot of like reps, representations and like subtext of what this means you know yeah and look it plays it very strongly literally the priest asks do you renounce satan and then we see a a shot of michael's face and then the shooting starts like yeah it it definitely plays on that yeah and the use of the organ in film music is always always reminds me of horror and this is like opera Mm. horror you know (laughs) so the fact that all this violence that is going on it's just it, it does work and it's weird. I'm just thinking, like, in comparison to Public Enemy, though. I'm, yeah, feel free to roll on if you want. I think we've said all we need to say yeah. about The Godfather. Go on. It's, it's weird. Like, I've just, I was listening to it before we started. And I, I mean, I find it clever how it under... Okay, well, first, first thing, let's just talk about the, the title of the track that we're discussing. So this is The Public Enemies um, called John J.D. Dies. And here it is.
So it, it's clever how it underscores two films. Okay, so basically this is the music kind of starts when John Dillinger with his party, the two ladies, he's in the cinema watching a Clark Gable uh, film called Manhattan Melodrama. And there's a scene where a female is saying, a female character saying goodbye, her farewell to her love interest, which obviously mirrors his reality as well, because the woman reminds him so much of Billy and, you know, how the music really kind of scores both films. Um, diegetically and non-diegetically I guess maybe um I also love how this is one of the things I don't know if many other people may recognize this but um mm -hmm. the way Elliot kind of the way he adds and mixes the lower ends of the orchestra or like the instrument um where he gives this particular piece very a lot of depth and richness mm. and there's a sense of finality and fatality to it as well as you see you know when they get the signal from Melvin that John is exiting the cinema, so get yourselves ready, and how the agents are all closing in on him and waiting to see who will shoot him, who will have the honor to kill John John yeah. Dillinger and put an end to his criminal ways. Because like it's it's weird. In some way, I've read in some places where, it, like in the lot of reviews, where it's meant to, it's quite heroic. I don't know if you have that in your notes. So, for my argument is that if it's meant to be heroic, it would be from the agent's perspective, not yes. John's. Because yep. throughout the whole film, you are set up to, you are set up this notion of competition amongst the police, the agents of various jurisdictions, the fact that they all want to get a piece, they, want, they all want to capture and kill John. And now this is, so this is going to be the moment. Who will it be? And you have this great short, although a bit cheesy, when John turns around and you see the fat boy agent who abused Billy earlier in the film um, when, when he was questioning her, stops, in, stops him in his tracks and you see a, a reflection of him in, in John's glasses, sunglasses. And it's almost like him saying to him, you are out of your league. This is not your shot. I will not be killed by you, fat boy. Mm. This is yeah, not yeah, your. Yeah. This is not your honor. Yeah. Like, um, it's almost like him saying that, like, you are not worthy to kill me. Mm -hmm. You know, I want it to be done. If I, if this is my end, it has to be done by something much more worthier than you. Interesting. Um, I didn't pick that up, but that's a very good point. But, but, but that's just my interpretation, and that's what mm. I find that that's what makes it quite powerful. Um, the way it kind of builds and builds and then you hear the shot and then everything goes quiet you know because this whole scene like even when he knows when he can sense that there's something going on behind him and he's just kind of like ah okay it's coming but i'm still gonna find i'm still gonna hold some control over who will it be you know but um but yeah so uh, yeah, I, I liked it actually in a weird way. I felt I. It was a. It's almost like a slow burn build oh, up. Oh god, yeah. yeah. But yeah, what did you think? The first thing I'll say is you're hundred percent right. I think one of the real strengths of Elliot Goldenthal in general is his use of the lower end of the orchestra, his use of brass and low strings, and and for, for using that to add sort of drama and interesting weight to scenes. Um, in that way, I think he's actually quite similar to particularly Johann Johansson and Hilda, Hilda um, Gunnardottir. And in fact, in, in some respects, some of this scene did remind me a little bit of some of the last scenes of The Joker, 
in terms of musically, sort of how it was using the sort of low rumbly type orchestra. Also, I, I also want to completely agree with you. The, the way that it transitions from watching the Clark Gable film in its original form with the original music to suddenly this underscoring it and how it's like it's not seamless because it's not meant to be seamless. You're meant to feel the change in mood as the music changes to something clearly more of this movie rather than of that movie. So you, you notice it when it happens very deliberately, but at the same time it feels right. And it actually, like, it actually underscores the movie for a while. The like, conversation from the film happens over the top of, of his score. And that is quite genius. I love that of just of him suddenly picking up this sense that something is happening and watching the film and because it's talking about like a good way to die and things like that. So he's sort of beginning to accept his fate at that moment. And that, that is very clever and very good. What I don't like about this whole finale to Public Enemies and like, I mean, I've been rabbiting on about it all episode but it's because it's so stark in this film this is a huge story it's meant to be the fbi killing public enemy number one a folk hero of america it's these two heroes squaring off against each other and i don't feel that and you're right it the the music it doesn't give you the heroism of the agents it gives you this sense of dread. So you think, well, that must be of Dillinger. But Dillinger has accepted he's going to die and he's going to have a heroic death, essentially, doing, you know, just living his life, doing his thing. And it doesn't give you that either. It just gives you this meek dread. It, to me, the, the, the fact that the music reminds me of Sicario and the Joker is really interesting because Sicario and the Joker is all about everybody is conflicted, everybody is broken, Right. Like that is the point of both of those movies of like even the quote unquote good guys have blood on their hands in those movies. It's it's about people doing awful things in order to stop slightly more awful people doing significantly more awful things. And that is the conflicted web. And that is that is what this music is designed for. But this isn't that this is too like heroic folk heroes who genuinely think that they're kind of doing the right thing and are loved going at each other and it just it doesn't capture that at all um i'm gonna go for jd dies obviously the godfather because i just don't think this is any good all right so interesting so let's move on to round five legacy now look i mean we don't have to say that much about the godfather really i mean obviously nino rota fabulous italian composer he's very, very famous in Italy, particularly for working with Fellini and Visconti, two of the seminal Italian directors. And he was extraordinarily prolific. He averaged something like three scores a year during his career and 10 a year during the late 40s and 50s when the Italian cinema was just explosive. Thoughts from you? What I like about his style is that he has a way of writing very decorative music, but it's easy to follow. Yeah. In the same way how The Godfather, everything yeah. they were saying, there's a lot of things that's happening at the same time. There's so many characters, so many nuances, so many backstories, like, and there are quite a lot of characters, and each one is not, each one has their own depth to it. They're not, not all of them are one dimensional in some, you know, I wouldn't mm. say that all of them are one dimensional. No. But it's still, it's easy to follow. Yeah. 
Okay, so it's very easy to see the legacy of The Godfather and of Nina Rota in particular. Public Enemies? It's just it's not a very good film. It's not, is it? And it's the, the music has its moments, but just I think it's a very bland overall, very lazy kind of, almost as though it was done very quickly. Like it's it's not Elliot Goldenthal. I think is a brilliant composer. He's one of those people who has a very distinct style. That's actually he hasn't lost it in the same way that many many other composers have. Like he still kind of retains his sort of experimental ways, you know which still have a signature tone to it Um, because you can still hear him here i think we're gonna have to come back to another elliot goldenthal score to be honest i don't think think we get his best yeah what i didn't realize is that michael mann is sort of apparently quite famous well not famously but michael mann apparently doesn't ask for much from his composers he's really more into underscore in terms of his composer work he just wants them to kind of sit underneath these scenes and keep out of the way. He seems to be more more a visual storyteller than a complete storyteller, as it were, which I'd never really respected so much before. But it's really noticeable. Maybe it's more noticeable when the film isn't quite there because it doesn't quite carry you through. Whereas I remember some of the music in Dances with Wolves, for instance, is phenomenal. So it's not like you can't have a good score in a Michael Mann movie, but it doesn't seem to be something he emphasises and sometimes the scenes aren't there. And I think that's the case here. Most of the conversation I've read about this film, they praise the sync licensing. They praise the use of the Billie Holiday and the Bye Bye Blackbird. And like and- the oldest one, the the one with the banjo style guitar. I mean, that when when the when Melvin is chasing, trying to kill Babyface Floyd, that's that's a brilliant track. I mean, that should have been just the whole theme. They should have done a Quentin Tarantino. Um, yeah. route where they did sh- there's no need to have a composer they could have just had pre-existing tracks the whole just soundtrack the whole film yeah i feel like they wind up caught in two worlds they mm. kind of split halfway between and they got the benefits of neither whereas if they'd committed either way they probably would have been better off but yeah. i don't think the film was there anyway to be brutally honest it's hard to kind of vote for elliot for legacy because you know that he's done he's got much better stuff going he's yeah. he's got much better productions than this um that would be classed more would win for his legacy just not this one yeah personally. and look i think i assume we're both voting for the godfather because i mean how do you not vote for the legacy of the god everything about the godfather <laughs> it's kind of hard to i mean you'll kind of be going against the family <laughs> Literally the only way you do vote against The Godfather is the way that the Oscars did on an outstanding technicality. I know, terrible. Where not only did not only did they disqualify it from like it was originally nominated but then it was uh, its nomination was withdrawn because the music had been in part of an had been in Fortunella. Yeah, which was two decades ago prior to The Godfather. And then the actual Oscar that year for best score was won by Charlie Chaplin. For Limelight, I'm pretty sure Charlie Chaplin was dead by this point. But the thing was that he had composed the score with a few other people for this film in 1952, so literally 20 years earlier. But because it had never been shown in L.A. before, it was deemed eligible. He's stupid. And so it was eligible for an Oscar and he won. So it's like a double technicality ruling where they ruled out the Godfather on a technicality and then ruled in Charlie Chaplin on a technicality and went that's the way that you give an award to 
something other than the Godfather. But I mean, honestly. But I mean, it got its dues. I mean, the Godfather too did win the Oscar for original score the follow the following time. But all all's well that ends well. And look, I think at the end of the day, we'll we'll just reward obviously everything to the Godfather with nine votes to one. I, I had to. I had to give something to. You did. You did. Absolutely. I felt sorry for it. I mean, come on. I know we couldn't have two whitewashes in a row. And look, I think inevitably we were always going to have to do The Godfather. It's one of those, I mean, seminal films you have to talk about. And whoever we put up against it was probably going to lose because, I mean, of course. <laughs> so the main takeaway is. A, amazing film. If you actually haven't seen it and you're like me as someone who feels like, oh, well, I feel like I've already seen so much of it, I'm not going to enjoy it. No, actually, take my word for it. Sit down, get some popcorn, just enjoy it. It is phenomenal. It is absolutely worth the effort. And seriously, to anyone out there who is a filmmaker, don't give away, don't give up on the simple things. Sometimes simple storytelling, it's just better. Watch The Godfather if you've forgotten how much you can do with simplistic straightforward storytelling you just tell so much more you don't need to hide everything behind useless mystery you can just be simple and let this the movie speak for itself because oh my god it's a good movie Mm -hmm. and speaking of good movies next month so you've had this phenomenal idea and I'm, i'm really quite excited about this of Let's talk about two movies by the same director, but which have different composers and see how that goes. And I particularly like that we've managed to find, well, that you've, uh, all credit to you on this one, Ella. <laughs> oh, thank you. No, but you agreed and it was also, oh, it's, yeah, a team, I agreed, it's, a, yes. it's a team so effort. It's really, that's, that, is the, that is the nobler thing to agree. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh. <laughs> but, no, but you but acknowledged pre- it. You could have easily said, like, no, nah, that doesn't work at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah, what you were talking about. Because sometimes I do have some ideas that I'm like, yeah, we should do this. And you'd just be like, nah, no, <laughs> it doesn't work. No. <laughs> oh, thank you for that. Um, but, but impressively, I, I actually really liked them because they're also two. I feel like they are comparable movies because this is a this is a director who, shall we say, has a very distinctive style. Yeah. And the director is Guillermo del Toro. And the films we're going to talk about are Pan's Labyrinth with, oh, my God, I, I apologise, score by Javier Navarrete. Never, Navarrete? Oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And then uh, The Shape of Water and because both you and I have studied French, with the Oscar-winning <laughs> score by Alexandre Desplat. It, Alexandre Desplat. Yeah. <laughs> do, it, do it with the French accent. Like, really yeah, put Desplat. some effort. So look forward to that next month, Pan's Labyrinth versus The Shape of Water. Very excited about that. Until then, I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope at least, you know, going back and reliving some of the great moments of The Godfather has, you know, been enjoyable to you. And maybe if you've watched Public Enemies... Maybe you've articulated something. Maybe you really love Public Enemies, in which case, reach out, let us know. I, I love it when people tell us that we're wrong. It's it's actually, it's genuinely entertaining. Uh, it doesn't happen that often, which I, I take to mean that we're right. So, you know, there it is. Um, but until next time, share us with your friends. Let everyone know. Let us know what you're thinking. Maybe give us some ideas of films to, to maybe do in films, games, or TV shows to do in future because... 
Sometimes we do run out of ideas. This one was come up with at the last moment, but was a brilliant idea. So very much looking forward to that. But apart from that, look after yourselves, stay safe, and we will talk to you next month. Bye-bye. Bye. Second stanza. Chenna luna menzumara, mamma mia, mamma ridare. Figlia mia, cosa dare, mamma mia, pensaccia tu. Sette figlia lo polizia, isso va, isso lena, sembra scuppetta maratena. Si cinga per la fantasia di scuppetti e vecchiozza mia.